This is John. This is Brother Blix. This is Trav. This is St. Paul. Welcome to the TriTac Games Podcast, your podcast where you can get frocked up all night and have a great time. And be blessed for it afterwards, too. Tonight, we are going to review one of the newest products put out by TriTac Games, Cloisters, a post-apocalyptic role-playing game. Now... About what time does this take place after the apocalypse? Trap? Since the apocalypse itself happened in 2018, yeah, about 100 years have passed since the initial World War III. And a lot of it was nuclear winter disease and all the various secondary effects, we will say. I'm not sure it was just secondary effects because a lot of the diseases that they talk about in here were weaponized. Right. There's a weaponized bird flu, Rogue 417, another product. That disease has popped up in this timeline as well. Yep. Though it's the friendlier version because if it was full-blown Rogue, uh, if you've ever read Rogue 417, our our other game, uh, if it was full-blown Rogue, uh, we wouldn't have as many happy-go-lucky people right now. I don't really think so, John. I think that it basically did exactly what it was supposed to do, but this is 100 years later, so there's been some time to clean up the mess and start repopulating. That's true. Now, the one thing I noticed a lot was looking at the maps that are here, because they have maps of the western U.S., but and that's not very impressive. I mean, they've got lots of radiation symbols and other things like that, but when they look over at Michigan itself, Looking at all the radiation symbols that are there, they're, they're either ground bursts or they're air bursts. And for this many nukes to have gone off, they had to be targeted tactical nukes, relatively small 20 or 30 kilotons, even 50 kilotons, but not megatons of nuclear power. No. These are very modern, very targeted, very surgical-type weapons that were being basically fired all over the world. I never realized that there were there, there are tiny nukes. Because um, <laughs> I always, whenever I think of a nuke, a nuke has to be, power, has to be super powerful, but it, it really doesn't. Well, I was at the White Sands Missile Range Museum recently. They had, some, they had some small nuclear payload devices. And, I mean, I guess big enough, uh, what a... Big enough to take out like a large neighborhood. Yeah, the tactical Little John, which fit yeah. into a 106 millimeter recoilless, and it had a range of about a mile. And it was a a quarter kiloton or a half kiloton. Basically, you hit one 
battalion-sized unit if it was adequately dispersed. If you remember the movie uh, Return of the Living Dead, at the end of it, uh, they have some guy about a state away in a tank on top of a hill firing some kind of a super tank round that basically comes over and takes out the neighborhood. Well, they had nuclear right. artillery shells as well, 155 and 203 millimeter, the old 8-inch guns on tracks. It's got to have less of a range of effect, like considerably less of a range of effect, as the range of the weapon firing it. Right. They have yeah. two classes of, of nuclear weapons. There's tactical and there's strategic. Right. And it looks to me like all these things that le- happened around Michigan had to be tactical. Otherwise, it, it would have been completely unlivable. Yeah. Matt played devil's advocate here. We might get into a discussion about this looking at Michigan. Okay. All right. And John can back me on this, having been raised in Michigan. Uh, John, you are familiar with Selfridge Air National Guard Base? Yep. Between Detroit and Port Huron? That and the auto industry here in Detroit, and especially, and Blix can back me on this, General, um, oh, God, I'm blanking, the tank place in Warren. You had to go there, Blix. (laughs) AMS. Yeah. All of that is here in the Detroit area. That would make Detroit oh so tactically wonderful for nuclear exchange, and Detroit basically got passed over. I would say Detroit actually would have been a strategic target, so we actually would have gotten the little bit bigger ones in the megaton range. There's only one possible answer. Divine intervention. It's right. It was a miracle. It was a miracle. It wasn't hit. It was a miracle. (laughs) Miracle. Miracle in America. Yeah. But when I read this, I just, I looked at it and I, it just, the, the red flags were popping up. I'm like, no, from what I know of this area, and, and as I said, John and Blix can back me on this. I'm just like, no, Detroit is a strategic military target for a nuclear exchange. It just. I think Richard did that on purpose. I, th- I think, like, like Bruce was saying, I think it's, it, it, it's considered to be divine intervention, isn't it? It, it doesn't say that anywhere for sure. Well, certainly everybody there believes it. Maybe that nuke malfunctioned. Looking. Uh, yeah, I mean, not every nuclear missile is going to fire correctly and land where it's supposed to land. It, I mean, it, I don't know how many missiles are supposed to be targeted at Detroit anymore. I mean, we, we got to assume that all these were, were ex-Soviet missiles that were still kept by the Russians. Was it the Soviets who fired them, not the Chinese or... I, I've forgotten. Uh, who was the actual one who was supposed to have fired this off? Uh, these have to be Russians, though. I mean, they, they're the ones that actually have the second biggest pile of ICBMs, and most of them are aimed at, well, targets in the United States. Uh, the trouble is, most of them are, are well, Soviet-era ICBMs. Uh, uh, John, it says here, it's hard to say who threw the first bomb, but the hydrogen demolition of Tehran happened within minutes. A nuclear ground burst ended Gaza's long-suffering population. Damascus, Syria, Tel Aviv, Haifa, and Jerusalem saw the light of nuclear destruction. The armies of vengeance that headed toward Israel were each gifted with kilotons. No one knew who hit the east and west coasts of the U.S. with EMP bombs at that time. Washington, New York ended in a burst of negatonage. Pakistan and India emptied their nuclear arsenals at each other. The Americans struck back at Iran and North Korea. So if we struck back, it means that we they were probably fired at us by Iran and North Korea. War games, the sequence where they're busy working out all the various scenarios. Do you remember how they always ended up with everyone shooting everyone else toward the end? Yeah, well, as they said, eventually it turned into a free-for-all. The thing you have to look into is to shoot at Detroit or North Michigan. That's a polar course. 
Yeah. That missile has to come over the over the North Pole, or it would have run out of fuel a long time ago. Unless it came from a sub. Yeah. Uh, a sub's no, only got a range about 5K, and it can't sidle right up to shore to launch. First of all, I think the biggest clue is that it was a hydrogen bomb that was the first one let, let loose. And best, best intelligence says the Israelis only have fission bombs. They don't have fusion bombs, any thermonuclear bombs. They just have fission bombs. So who threw the first punch? We don't know. Well, but, we're not well, sure on that, John. Because sure? we're not positive who collaborated with South Africa to create a nuclear weapons. South Africa stands out as the only nuclear power who has ever become a nuclear power and then chosen to dismantle their weapons and become non-nuclear. Yeah, that's true. But, but whoever again, collaborated with them isn't fessing up to it. Right. Well, we're never going to know because it's not in the game. Yeah. So <laughs> Most of the Southern Hemisphere is not in the game. We don't really know what happened to South America and South Africa, other than politics. Right. And I think that's intentional. I think the, it's intentional because the idea is that after this happened, it was so tremendous. The dieback, the fallback, the, the crash was so profound that even if they exist, we're not going to have any contact with them for a very long time. In the post-apocalyptic scenarios, world communications is gone. Heck, you may not even know what happened on the other side of the country, much less, you know, other hemisphere, other continents. Unless you, unless you, you want to build a missile to go all the way out to the um, geosynchronous orbit, which is actually not that easy to do, and then take out the satellites there, they're sort of still up there. It's probably more like the ground sats or the ground sats are what's, what's been taken out. So, you know, if, if you can build a ground station, you might be able to hook up back up again to the satellites and figure out what the heck's going on. Our best information we have on the planet itself is in scenario number nine, which has notes on the planet. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, if you're talking about places that get land blasted, I mean, uh, Paul, you just left left target number one for most of the Russian and so mo- Russian missiles. Colorado <laughs> Springs. Yeah, no kidding. I sat on primary target number one, or, you know, only second only to Omaha, Nebraska. Followed by Washington D.C. Come next to number number four, then the Bangor base uh, sub base here in Washington State. Yeah, nobody wants them to sail back and get a reload. Yeah, Colorado Springs is the home of NORAD, Air Force Academy, a major Air Force base, a major armor base, Army base. Uh, wait, wait, NORAD wouldn't that be able to withstand a nuclear bomb, anyways? That's why they built it. For two hits, it is inside of a mountain, and the mountain does have shock absorbers. This mountain does have sh- inside is sort of like a village sitting on spring shock absorbers. You walk from walkway on scaffoldings from module to module, and they do sit on on springs. That is to prevent you from ground shock. The structure of the mountain itself is reinforced. They bored into the rock walls of the cave structure and sunk iron rods that are like 60 feet or more long. The door to get in is exactly like, you. well, it's smaller, but it's a lot like what you see in... um, most films when they portray NORAD across the city from it. When John was talking about ground stations, you have uh, Shriver air force base out there, which is nothing but a golf balls. It's nothing but a bunch of, of ground antennas continuously talking to military satellites, the GPS cloud that's above our heads and yeah. they keep everything in sync and in time. Heck the Navy's out there too with a, with a small base. 
I, I just remember telling my mom when I was living when we lived in Colorado Springs, if the if the boom ever went up and you know the Soviet in the, they were still were Soviet, were there Soviets at the time? Yeah, when we first moved there, were still Soviets. Uh, if it ever went it went up, I'd get the lawn chair out, sit down, and crack a beer, and watch the light show because there's no way in heck you could get out of Colorado Springs and not run into a nuke. Except for going through old Colorado Springs. That's the only way, and that would be just clogged with cars. So you just might as well sit back and enjoy a beer. Oh yeah, you guys you think do you think you're bad? I live in I live in Maryland, right next to APG. I am glass. I live in the glass zone. Hey everybody. Yeah. I'm gonna be vaporized. This is not even gonna be a light show for me. It's gonna be a did you hear? <laughs> That, that's why this book, does, this game, doesn't have anything to do with you, Peter. <laughs> no, it really doesn't. If if you look, like, uh, yeah, that the whole area I live in, yeah, gone. Yeah, there's a big big splotch here saying radiation is here. <laughs> you know, I didn't I didn't do any better moving up here to Denver because I'm I am part of the big federal system in the Capital West. The Denver Federal yeah. Center. There's a whole bunch of federal agencies in here. There's a there's a Ooh. mint downtown. So yeah, I'm not doing any better. I'm I'm all three or four miles from 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 any one of about four oh, guaranteed we targets. Play. Oh yeah, Paul, you got the red dot on you, brother. Yeah, you and me both got the red and Blake. We got the red dots. You know, Bruce, you should consider moving to Mississippi. Because I'm looking at the map, and Atlanta, Georgia, isn't that like right in the middle of the state? Yes. It's a hot zone right in the middle of the state. Oh, I think that's where the, the nuke landed. <laughs> what I can tell you is, is that if you look at the map of Atlanta, Georgia, we have a big circle, big interstate that goes around Atlanta, and then there's a line that goes straight from the top to the bottom, and another line that goes from the right to the left. It comes with its own sighting. It's a... <laughs> So a bomb site. Uh, X marks the spot. Yep. Yep. Okay, I, I'm going to go back to where Bruce started with the maps. Thank you. On mm. Michigan, so I pulled up my favorite mapping tool, Google Earth, yeah. and started looking at some of these sites, and and then I started looking around Michigan with an eye towards what would I do if if I was in charge of the military and Michigan was my target, and there's a lot of stuff that's left standing in this exchange that shouldn't be. Assuming, of course, that they have lots of missiles to use. I mean, well, yeah. I'm assuming that this is the height of the Cold War when this happens. But why would you? I mean, there's nothing to indicate in the game literature that it is not. Uh, 2018 is when it happened, Paul. The boom, 2018, and it's been revised. I mean, Richard has actually gone through and did some revision. I don't see any reason why. Anybody would like, as we've been saying, is it Michigan has been going through such a bad economic time? If I was, you know, the, uh, some unfriendly power, I'd be retasking those missiles to a lot of different places other than Michigan. I'll tell you why I still would not, because Michigan has so much transport moving across it and through it. Some things that surprise me that are still standing, like. Niagara Falls, the power station there, is still standing. <laughs> right. That's enough Actually, to light up Canada. Yeah, look, it's not; it's still there. What I'm saying is, if you need electricity and to keep everything from falling into the dark ages, that's more than enough for all of Michigan and most of Canada. 
but yeah. there's also the Sioux locks takes a hit, but there are several other locks for transporting across to get to the lakes for trade. Several highways have no option, but to cross there mm-hmm. just, just for purposes of trade and denying somebody movement. In addition to the nukes, there's also the biological weapons. I'm just saying is that I think it got hit pretty darn good and you didn't have to necessarily use nukes in order to uh, do the damage that you're talking about because none of those military installations you're talking about are in operation in the year 2120. And in 2018, you may have been some, there may have been some cutbacks. You never know. So we don't like to use bioweapons because once you let that out of the jar, you've lost control of it. I'm sure it wasn't done by us. Well, I'm seeing smallpox as one of the diseases, and there's only two players in the game that have have samples of smallpox. We're one of them. U.S. Yeah. U.S. is one, and Soviet Russia is the other one. Okay. Well, I'm willing to bet that building that they have the smallpox in is probably within a few buildings of where I work. Fort Detrick? No, no. Aberdeen Proving Grounds. I don't know if, if they're the ones with the smallpox, but I know... Sorry, we're the ones with the building near my work is the building, the only building in the United States that is allowed to fabricate or make uh, mustard gas. Mm. Fort Dietrich was the biowarfare lab. But everybody's moved around since then. I work for Suburney, which is chemical, biological, uh, nuclear, radioactive, blah, 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 blah. So we have a whole like chem biowarfare department. Right. That's pretty much who I work for. Okay. But it doesn't really matter whether or not this matches up with your ideas of what the nuclear or biological landscape should have been. I mean, this is, this is what the game provides. This is, says this is what it is. The, the Russians lost several of their missile capabilities when the, when the Ukraine split off and gave all their missiles back. Now, there's all <laughs> these missiles which, aren't in, which can't be launched anymore from silos. Maybe that's the one. Where those are the ones where they're targeted Detroit, and they're no longer being targeted because they're not there anymore. You know, that's another reason, thing to think about over the past years. There's, there's, there's very reasons why some places were never hit. Maybe because the missile that was, was targeted targeting that area was in the, in the Ukraine, and because Ukraine separated and had to give all its missiles back, it was never put back someplace and retargeted. It was probably just dismantled as part of the. Uh, Salt or various nuclear, you know, disarmament tre- treaties. So that's the reason why Niagara and Detroit survived. You know, there was no missile for it. <laughs> Here we have the year twenty one twenty, and you know that we had all this stuff, and most of the people managed to just survive. They went through the bad times. They went through the various food riots and the. The one thing I'd say about this is that I'm glad that they have all these markers saying that bad things happened because uh, most scenarios that I see, it's really bad if a lot of people don't get killed because then there's no food and there's riots and there's really, really nasty social problems. But if you kill off most of the people right at the beginning, then you end up with a renaissance eventually. Because now, all of a sudden, the few people that are left find all these resources available to them, as you would call them, John, easily attainable resources, just laying around rusting somewhere or piled up in a warehouse or under maybe in a bunker or a basement. 
and you're able to hot start the economy and uh, a lot of technology that way. There's a lot of work that needs to, be, needs to be done, and there's not a whole lot of people to do it with. So that's another reason why you would see a renaissance. People, you know, a lot of folks said, well, my work is worth something now. Unless, of course, you get pulled in by the ministry. So the only real reason for the lack of a renaissance is because biowarfare plagues are indiscriminate. It doesn't care if you're a janitor or a multiple PhD holding professor. Right. But this is 100 years later, so they'd all be dead anyways. Right. But there wasn't somebody to pass on that knowledge. That's what I was saying. That's part of where the spark of knowledge died. Right. But it doesn't kill books. The problem with uh, book burning came later. But they weren't the majority. They were a very vocal and active minority. So, yeah, they're going around cruising, looking for things like libraries to burn and stuff like that. But they don't, they're not going to get all the stuff. They're not going to get the manuals in the back of gas stations. They're not going to get stuff that's in people's basements, uh, old books that uh, might be just left over when kids went to, people went to school and had metal shop. But you're not going to jump back to the 21st century in, in 100 years, you know, it's even without those groups. I, I think you can. I still think you can make a major fall from 21st back to the 18th century. It's been five generations, and the people who knew how to do stuff died. Sure, the book's there. And as I'm finding, uh, even with the book in my hands, algebra is a challenge for me again after so many years away from school. So I still think you can collapse if you don't have somebody with a direct experience to guide you and say, well, no, that's not the way how you do it. Disagree, sir. I'm not saying that it doesn't require champions. And in this game, there is a champion. So why don't we talk about players here? Not the player characters, but the groups that are involved. Okay, we have we have the bandits and cannibals. We've got the warlords. We've got the the new Catholic. What are they called? The, well, the cloisters are part of it, but it's the church. It's called the church. Yeah, new Catholic church. Yeah, right. And then there's the uh, uh, ministries. There's also the guys from Moral Project, right? <laughs> well, no, they're they're pretty much written off as mostly brain dead or or freezer burned. Oh. Oh, the Frozen Chosen, yeah. The Frozen Chosen, there you go. But there's also the various merchants, the, tra- the, the, the go-around, the traveling. And is there any other groups? Uh, the Luddites. Well, yeah, the Luddites. Yeah, now there's some smaller groups. I'm, not, I'm talking about the really small groups, like the clowns, you know, the new Vikings and such, okay? We can mention those because there are going to be room for a lot of strange cults and, and groups, but I'm talking about the major players. The Mexican nope. army? No, the Mexicans aren't there. Yes. Yes, yes they are. Page 28. The Mexican army. They're, they're heading up from Texas, a string of Mexican forts and settlers. Yeah, see, we got so many little groups here that, that you can sit there and plug into a scenario it almost ends up becoming like, you know, the villain of the week. Oh, okay, we got to deal with the Road Warriors this week. We got to deal with the Euros next week. And in three weeks, I'll plan them up against uh, the slavers, you know, and just. Right. But my point is they're not in Michigan. They're, they, the farthest they've come is Iowa. Yeah. Pretty far away. I'm not saying they're not coming. All right. I'm just saying that if from the if you start at the uh, at the beginning of this game, the way they have it listed, there are people that they tried to contact 
and all the people that we tr- that, that tried to contact them disappeared, never came back. Now, I, I don't consider them to be a major player. In uh, the, I consider the Canadians to be a much better, uh, bigger players as uh, than the Mexican Army. Well, looking at the map, there are three warlords in three major warlords. Right, that's what I said. Warlords are one of them. So let's talk about these different players here, okay? Who wants to talk about the warlords? Think of it as a return to feudal society. A strong man pops up, carves out his territory by being more ruthless, more organized, and more efficient than any of his neighbors. Yeah, they have two choices: be absorbed or die. Yeah, might makes right. That's all there is to it. It's it, it's um, Darwinism. The strong survive, and their safety numbers. So if you see this guy, you know, amassing weapons and food and medicine and fuel and bits and pieces of tech that they can keep their machines running, you're going to go to him. Yeah, he may be a bit brutal, but, you know, at least you know you're not going to have uh, hordes of armies of uh, other barbarians trying to take your stuff because this guy's got the guns. It's interesting to me that these warlords, they're almost like privateers. They're almost, you know, gentlemen pirates. They're not, you know, vicious I mean, they may be vicious, but I'm just saying they're not like r- rampaging around the countryside, you know, uh, attacking everybody inside and just trying to amass as much land and control and rape and pillage here and there. They're not. They're very focused. They they don't seem to reach out any farther than they can control, and they provide a lot of stability to the area. You even think that they were a good thing. It even mentions benevolent warlords nearby, and it's like, yeah, these guys just want to carve out their domain and live peacefully. They're not looking to start trouble. If you come to their door, however, they have every right to defend themselves. It does say on page four that they're often in conflict with other warlords or large banded groups. That seems to be the ones that they they bump up against. Yeah, and I would think you know that these may be a hereditary position. I mean, if they're well, if they're well established, you know, a warlord, you know, he has a dozen or so kids. Uh, the eldest takes over when he, when the old guy pops off, or you know, gets eaten by wild pigs. Yeah, yeah. It really depends on how the, he raises his kids. If he raises them to uh, well, be a, bene- a benign warlord, yeah, they're cruel, but you know, they're not going to be out, go all their way to be cruel, so to speak. You you cross them, you're going it's going to be a world of hurt. Otherwise. Live and let live. That's what I'm saying. They seem to have a kind of a code of honor. Yeah. Yeah, I was surprised to see them by warlords, with the concept that most people have of them. Actually, I think they're right. They are feudal. I mean, basically, you have a guy who, if any place else other than America, would call himself king or chief. You give up your freedom and your autonomy in order to receive his protection. You just swear yeah. loyalty to him. Yeah, you become a serf under him. Yeah. Yeah. And it may not be too bad, you know. In a way, I can see the warlords being a supporters of the church in New Detroit. Because that's what you do with your second son, your third son. They're not going to inherit your your feudal kingdom. But you can insert them into the new the church in New Detroit and they're going to be men of power, men in position. They're going to further their education, and he gets a hand once in a while, favor. And let's let's not forget, you know, the warlords don't have to necessarily be bad. I mean, these could actually – your warlord could be a good guy. I mean, maybe he has 
taken power in much the same way if you if you watch The Walking Dead the way Rick Rick has, you know, it's it's because he saw a need. These people, um, the people under him or the people he's taking over uh, for, he's giving them leadership and and you know maybe he sees himself as as a good figure. I mean, I think most warlords, not most. Let me take that back. I. <laughs> I know reading about some of the some of the warlords in some of these regions, you know, they're just looking out for their people. And of course, you run into the problem of corruption of power, but you also run into the need for a heavy hand in some cases. You're talking about an area of anarchy where anything could go wrong and if it if it does, you know, it's dire consequences. So without, you know, a strong like, you know, legislative body and all that kind of stuff that we enjoy that that's been built over time, uh, these guys have been filling a, a gap and a need, and they haven't had the the time or the structure to do all that. So they, you know, sometimes they have to rule with a little bit of a heavy hand to keep the order and keep all the other people safe. So they don't necessarily have to be bad. And they are the only source of armed men. I mean, like you know, that I can see. There really aren't groups of militia, really. It's, it seems to mm-hmm. me it's, it, it, if you needed a, a bunch of guys to go help you deal with something, you'd go to the warlord, right? I don't think they would stand for militia being in their territory. Yeah, that's that would be a threat. That's a problem. Yeah, which is why they, 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 they're not fans of the bandits and the cannibals. Well, yeah, if I had my own fiefdom, if I had carved out my own niche in the wilderness with a population that I watch over and they do stuff for me. And there, here comes this roving band of armed, basically armed thugs, you know, proclaiming that they want to do rule. I'd be like, um, sorry, this is my area. I'm the one that makes the rules. You either join up with me or, again, the aforementioned world of hurt. Well, not only that, I mean, you got to watch these guys. Like, okay, so long as you've got these guys sneaking around your border and stuff, and maybe they're not even sneaking, maybe they've just set up camp outside of, you know, outside of your safe, your, what you call your safe zone. Well, now you have to be afraid to send any scouts out that way. You have to be worried about if any of your people drift outside the, you know, the wrong line that has, you know, that hasn't really been established. Um, they could, they could fall victim to these guys. And of course, if you have, you know, like you said, your fiefdom, uh, you have to have farms and you have to have people um, gathering supplies and, and stuff like that. So they can't always stay within your little boundary. And if you've got this predator just stalking around your borders, of course you're going to go take him out. That's why they only go up against the large bandit groups because the small bandit groups are hard to catch. Right, but I'm saying you're going to do what you can to, to keep that threat off your land. I would think that warlords would also have to have patrols and uh, would be actively involved in sharing information, tactical information about groups that were moving around with various tradesmen and travelers. That's their only source of information. I mean, there is radio and stuff that these guys have after 100 years. They've gotten that going. But still, probably some of the best source of information are akin to like a Pony Express type thing where you just got a guy riding a horse to beat the band to the next village and saying, well, yeah, this happened over in this village, you know, I just left it behind, you know, a couple days ago. That word of mouth is often their best source of information. Why am I picturing Kevin Costner right now? Postman, I was just thinking that. Well, they do have the Pony Express in this game. And, and they pretty much operate by riding faster than the bandits can catch them. <laughs> now, now, interesting. I'm looking at the, at the Warlord's placements. At least two of them, I would say, are associated with cities. 
the Port Huron and the Pontiac. Mm -hmm. Now, the Port Huron is interesting is that it's at the mouth of the, uh, which river is that again? St. Clair River. The St. Clair River is the only connection to the Great Lakes. And there's a warlord in charge of Port Huron. He gets his money and his power from the fact he's controlling trade. Well, yeah, Port Huron is a major port city in Michigan with the Blue Water Bridge leading to Sarnia. Therefore, yeah, it's a major hub. That warlord is smart. Now, the other one is in Pontiac. And you think, well, Pontiac? Actually, if you look at a map, Pontiac is next to a whole bunch of freshwater lakes. And what is the other most, most dearest thing you're going to need in a post-apocalyptic society? Freshwater. So the Great Lakes aren't freshwater? They are, but uh, uh, this is more inland. It's also off of uh, near, near 75. So I would imagine that even though it's 100 years later and there's been absolutely zero maintenance, the main throughway through most of Michigan is going to be 75, I-75. It's going to be taking carts over instead of semis, so it's going to probably still be quite serviceable. Yep. So, yes, and then that's, that brings to the point up with that third warlord. I'm going, what's up there? I mean, he's basically near Omer. Omer and some other little city up there. Oh, Greece. And I'm going, what's up there? And then I'm thinking, you know, that makes a good port. It does. It makes a great little port. So maybe he's setting up a new city, and it's a new new port city up there in the in the crooked in, inside the thumb. All right. All three of these guys are in are t trying to control trade and, and transportation. Let's move on to the church. Okay. Uh, the current the, the church uh, the the original church that's over uh, in um, uh, the Mediterranean is gone. Apparently, the you know, the whole. European thing. I mean, if it's still there, we have no contact with it at any kind. So, no, he does actually state it is a it is the the great sea of glass, not the sea ah. anymore. Okay, <laughs> I see. That's the holy sea. It's the yeah. <laughs> it's the reflective sea. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> this is the reestablishment of the church, the Christian church as, as it's known the Catholic Church, in America. But it doesn't really seem to, at least as far as the book and the game is concerned, it doesn't seem to be pushing very hard on doctrine or anything else like that. It seems to be more oriented toward the concept of the golden rule. Could we actually have a little slice of life, two little life in the days, which portray how it's much better living under the church, under the Catholic Church. It is under the ministry. That's for dang sure. Well, especially for the readers of this game, because the Catholic Church, they give you lots of opportunities, but you have to apply yourself. It says here that the New Vatican, which is in Berkeley, north of Detroit, is a united conglomeration of smaller cities that survived the nuclear winter that followed the, all the bombings. Basically looks over and involves itself with about 100,000 people. So this is a major economic area and probably one of the greatest areas of stability in the North. It's a power center, you know, as we like to talk about in Fringeworthy. Uh, they've got a lot of stuff, a lot of people who are willing to work together for the betterment of all, and therefore a lot of people are willing to work with them to get some of that benefit. What would you say the population of the United States is after the war? It was before the war, uh, I would probably say around 400 million. That's, or 480, something like that? Are we talking like 
90 percent of the America, you know, people dead. I imagine, yeah. I mean, if not initially from the from you know the bombs and the and the disease and the fallout and the stuff, and also the predation by other survivors who didn't have anything and are and the detonation and the eruption of Yellowstone Caldera. You know, they mentioned that. I was like, holy cow, that basically eliminates the entire western part of the United States. Yeah. Yeah, and and it's really understated in this game. Last time the Caldera erupted, they found ashfall a thousand miles away from it in about three feet to three, three, no, three meters in depth. Uh, might want to explain what a caldera is for those who are geologically inept. It's the crater of a volcano, but Yellowstone's crater is about 100 miles across. So they call it a super volcano. Yeah, a super volcano. Yeah, and it basically pop and wee. Now, it may not have been a big pop, though, because right now there's no sign that it's very active. So it may only have been a minor pop. So, you know, we're just talking like one state's covered in ash instead of three states or four states. If, if it were to happen today, that it wouldn't be as cataclysmic as some people think it would be. The evidence is pointing towards we would probably have no summer for three years, um, which is bad. <laughs> it's very, very bad. But it's not like it's going to wipe everything and everyone out. It would create a very, uh, very serious starvation issue. But it's not like um, – it's not like you couldn't live. I mean, if you had a stockpile of food, you'd probably be okay. It's going to yeah. bury what is the breadbasket of a good portion of the world if under ash, several feet of ash. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know. A good movie for this is called Super Volcano. <laughs> I was going to say, that, that's what they were saying. If you, if you have access to food, like if you're not re- – if you're dependent on the food that that supervolcano is going to bury. Um, you're gonna have issues, but if you know, if if not, if uh, if you can get access to food. So in other words, if you have stockpiled food, or or you live in a region where you can grow food on your own land, you'd be okay. But but you're right, Paul. Star- starvation starvation would be a very big issue. And all those preppers who have prepped for you know. They might do, do okay, though. A lot of what was it uh, for only like six months? I think is the Mormon prepping. It's a year. A year, so they have a year's worth of, of food, if not more. Uh, most of that prepper stuff is good for several, for like ten, twenty years before you have to worry about it. You know, even though they show this listing of where the bombs and stuff are, if I was running this game, I'd basically assume that the the base the everything west of the Mississippi was gone. There might be some sporadic people living out there, but it would be basically empty wilderness. Due to the prevailing wind conditions, all the ashfall would be basically from the from uh, Yellowstone east. In fact, where I am, wouldn't have, wouldn't see any ashfall at all. Right. It all go. It all it, go east. It's the Midwest and the East Coast that suffers most yeah. of it under a Yellowstone explode, yeah. detonation. Yeah. yeah. We've already determined that the East Coast is going to be nuked into the friggin' uh, Stone Age. Right. So basically we don't have an East Coast. <laughs> uh, if there is a West Coast, then it's very it's, – it's a sliver isolated to the north. There is no middle of the country at all. And then we've got primarily uh, – we've got Detroit and Canada. 
Yeah. In fact, I remember the, the, the ash fall maps are such that it would it falls sort of slightly south e- uh, southeastern. So yeah, Michigan fall doesn't get doesn't get hit, but the winter that occurs afterwards, both nuclear and volcanic, will probably just take care of any vegetation we have and crops. So yeah, you got to survive at least three years. But it won't cause a glaciation because we still have too much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. It'll just melt it away afterwards. Right. But the point is the crops won't grow. Nothing will be growing. You're literally going to have to be able to wait out a period of at least three years before you can even think about starting to grow food. But fortunately, like I say, most people would have died from the ash fall anyways and the diseases and the nukes that went off. So... Detroit is what's left, and that's why it's it's set there. So it's, it's kind of a nice place now, 100 years later, because they get this really nice picture of the new Vatican in the book. You're basically spreading out from there. You're trying to see what else is out there, and that's what most of these missions and the game is about, I think. Yeah. I think by the 25th century, all that ash fall would be nice, nice and fertile ground to grow uh, <laughs> crops in. <laughs> you guys read the book or seen the movie The Road? Yeah, I've seen the move. So I'm picturing the road is probably what most of everything looked like 50 years before this this setting. Okay. that's I mean, that's kind of how I'm seeing it, 50 to 75 years before this setting. Um, and, and this is like, this would be very similar to the aftermath of all of that. Mm-hmm. This is a time of recovery. This is when they're actually getting a foothold you know, in the step back towards civilization, technology, and pot, and a glimmer of a bright future. If they could resolve the issues that they have with all these various groups. So the church, in addition to being the, uh, the religious center, the new reformed Catholic church, it also maintains its organization by these, or- these places called cloisters which, as far as I can see, seems to be primarily places where people are taught useful skills. Or, uh, as a hint sometimes, also where they're doing projects. So there could be a cloister set up over, say, a book repository, and they're busy recovering books. Well, that'd be great if they could find one of those, yeah. Oh, there's a place in... Oh, there's a place in... I want to say it's Pennsylvania... It's a it's a federal archive. It's a former salt mine or something like that that is meant to hold a repository of books just for this scenario. Mm-hmm. There's also one I think in uh, Utah, another one in a salt mine. That's the entire purpose is to store. They they decided that you know what, this and data and that stuff is 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 ephemeral. The big one goes up in a hundred years. No one will be able to read what's on those hard drives. So they've been printing and storing, well, the internet. Now, if I was making a game map of this particular part of the country, what I would do is I would go and I would look up on the internet all the landfills and put a cloister on top of that. That's your best bet for finding stuff that might actually be useful. Well, the reason I bring up old landfills is because the newer landfills, you may not find anything in tech because they do use those big compactors with the big teeth wheels that tear things up. So they tend to mush and tear. So you need, would need an older landfill where they didn't do that. They just put it there and bury it, and that's it. Don't worry about 
a lot of new landfills rip this stuff up before it gets buried. So it actually will decompose. Uh, if you just put it in there and it's covered dirt, it doesn't decompose. You're saying that you're saying you'd, you'd want to build one of these like in a, in a landfill or, or or an area like that, right? Or near one, yeah. So you could start you could start harvesting it, yeah. Well, that's why they started in Detroit. Oh, 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 oh you like that, Trav? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I imagine landfills are in Detroit right now. They're not worried about compacting the stuff. They just bury it and it's done with. Uh, <laughs> what we get our golf courses from? Come on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. But don't those golf courses have the little pipe that burns off methane also as well? (laughs) They do, actually, truth to tell. Yeah. Yeah. The church exists because there's been a number of incidences in its history recently where various members supposedly had supernatural incidents that proved that they were the new manifestation of the church, like St. Robert, like the current pope. And so they, they, they operate on the principle that they are, in fact, doing God's work with authority that comes from God itself, which is a, an important thing to, to the game itself and to creating them as an entity different than, let's say, the warlords or some of these other groups. They have a reason. It's not, it's not just because they put on the robes. You know, they actually do believe because they have things that make them believe that what they believe is true. Oh, look, one of the cloisters is, is in Utah. I wonder where it's at. <laughs> oh, where's the landfill in Utah? <laughs> no, I'm thinking, no, I'm thinking the repository I was talking about. Maybe. This is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. This is Blix. Don't hate the game, hate the players. And this is Paul. When you remove the pin, Mr. Grenade is no longer your friend. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Yo, brothers. This was the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. You know the drill. It's protected under the Creative Commons License 3.0. No commercial reproduction, no derivatives. And sucker, you best attribute this to the folks at TriTech Games. And if you don't, we'll be after your sorry butts. Cause we're some bad mothers. Hi, this is Trav of the Travcast, Hour 3 of Blind Wolf's Rubber Room Association on DementiaRadio.org, Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern.